Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. This is the 33rd podcast in our series in the second half of American history. In the 32nd podcast, we discussed the United States in the home front, how Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, was doing much of like his Democratic predecessor, Woodrow Wilson, did to prepare for an eventual American engagement in what was then known as the Great War, retrospectively known as World War I. Roosevelt instituted the policy of preparedness. He instituted the policy of Lend-Lease. We talked about the way Franklin Roosevelt was restricting immigration across the uh, Eurasian landscape, as well as looking at how and why Japan felt it was justified and ransacking so many independent countries in former East Asia. So because of that, we also then looked at the event of Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. We debated quickly whether Franklin Roosevelt knew about the attack or not. We then looked at the United States and mobilizing for the war effort, again, very similar to World War I. And unlike the First World War, we ended with our discussion by looking at America's Manhattan Project, which was the development of the first atomic bomb. In this 33rd podcast, we're going to continue look at going along America and, and the home front. And in this case, wrapping up our discussion of the Manhattan Project, that while again it was identified by an area in one of the five boroughs of New York City, that by itself, the only thing that New York City had to do with the bomb, by and large, was processing a lot of paperwork for it, which was not a small task, and I don't mean to minimize it. In fact, by the time the Manhattan Project was done, if I were to take each American government document that pertains to the Manhattan Project and put it in a computer paper box, I would have to use that entire box of computer, that entire uh, computer paper box would be loaded with Manhattan Project documents. I would need another box and then another box of the same size. In fact, by the time I was done, I would have a series of boxes that extended over 10,000 feet or over two miles. Again, just documents pertaining to the Manhattan Project. It was a project of utmost secrecy. The actual separation of uranium was done in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Oak Ridge, Tennessee is where the centrifuges were working for plutonium, as well as in Washington State. Chicago, again, as we talked about in the prior podcast, was the actual location at the University of Chicago where the uranium atom was split for the first time. 
And again, please know that the uranium atom by itself is the heaviest occurring atom that we are aware of on planet Earth. There is so much energy in the uranium atom that if you were to take a single uranium atom and put it on a tabletop and put a grain of sand right next to the uranium atom, the sand would actually twitch because of the energy coming from the and all those electrons spinning around the uranium atom. It is a phenomenal achievement to have split that atom. Again, the scientists were immediately looking at civilian applications with a controlled reaction. The American military was looking at the military applications with an uncontrolled reaction. If you had the opportunity to listen to that, uh, to look at that movie trailer of Fat Man Little Boy, one might get you were able then to see just how much stress and pressure everybody was under in all the parts of the Manhattan major cities and areas around the United States. And again, that was spread out for purposes, of course, of security. In terms of the effects of the Manhattan Project and what they were able to attain in that time period, we'll see the end result of that when we discuss the atomic bombings of Japan's Hiroshima and Nagasaki towards the end of the war. In the Manhattan Project, as well as throughout the United States in the war effort, all races, religions, and genders volunteered. Once again, Females and minorities were allowed to, to enlist in almost any type of job when the men were, a majority of the men were fighting in the war effort, or a majority of the war effort was by men. <clears throat> in terms of the United States home front as well, the enlistment age dropped from 21 to 18. Americans were told to watch just how much you eat literally every day. Careful how much gas you put in your car. Do you really need new tires for your car? Can you push those tires for just a few more miles? Because every resource a civilian at home was, was consuming, was taking in, was less that was available for the war effort. That's the reason that when I cover the conflict in my face-to-face -face classes, I bring in not copies or remakes, but original ration stamp booklets that have been that I obtained over the years, and a special shout out and thanks to Mike and Lee Cook, as well as their daughter Karen Turner, for all of the donations that they have made in the way I see it to the study of history. While the documents and these artifacts are in my hands, they are these are the types of things that when I retire. I wish to be able to give to another history professor that teaches in much the same way that, yes, it's nice to be able to show images on Google on a large screen, but when students actually see these real artifacts and they can come up and look at them closely and depending upon the artifact, possibly even be able to hold them, that's really what helps to make history come alive. If these different artifacts could only talk the stories that they could tell. So again, this is what we're looking at here in terms of the war effort back in the United States with the civilians. 
in terms of also with soldiers being recruited and many enlisting on their own accord and giving them credit for their bravery. Yes, there were fast track weddings. Yes, weddings were taking place with younger and younger couples because the men were just as wise as the woman knowing that when they leave for the European or the Asian fronts, that may be the last time that they see their spouse again. So there were fast track weddings and yes, fast track attempts to try to quote unquote, create a family. It's argued that one of the most significant ways that the pressure and tension of the typical American young couples and older couples as well was felt, was reflected in the music of the times. Music such as what a, a male soldier might think and write and tell his girlfriend or his wife back at home, hey, that apple tree we used to always sit under on our dates, don't sit under there with anybody else but me. Hence the song, don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. Singers would belt out the tunes such as those that try to keep our spirits up, to try to keep our chins up with songs such as accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and don't mess with Mr. In Between. The song accentuate the positive was one of many also that would be sung to the soldiers overseas when our entertainers took their own risk in trying to at least provide a moment of respite, a moment of hope for our soldiers overseas. And yes, what the wives and the girlfriends might have been thinking while they were toiling away at home, trying to manage in a one-parent household, in a single-parent household, wondering what their boyfriends or husbands, and yes, in some cases, husbands and boyfriends back here in the coast, back in the United States, would want to say to the soldiers fighting in North Africa, Japan, the Japanese territory, and Europe, perhaps one of the best songs out of World War II that really reflects this in tone and in words and melody is sung by Joe Stafford, You Belong to Me. And I encourage you right now to pause the podcast and go look up the song Accentuate the Positive by Johnny Mercer. Listen to his almost giddy voice as he belts out those commands and those orders. You accentuate the positive. You eliminate that negative. You don't even mess with Mr. In-Between. Then on a far more somber note, listen to the beautiful voice of Joe Stafford when she sings You Belong to Me. She knows that you will be taking that her boyfriend or her your uh, husband might be taking a cruise down the Nile might be seeing the pyramids in Egypt. But regardless of what they see, especially when a beautiful woman crosses their path, as the song's title says in those four words, you belong to me. They're heart-wrenching songs, many of them, which is the reason why I play just a few seconds of a clip to these so of these songs to my face-to-face -face classes, because again, it really does reflect the tone. 
Yes, on a negative note as well, I'd be remiss by not bringing up in some cases the way the United States population and our government was overreacting in some cases to threats that weren't necessarily as high as we might have thought they were at the time. Again, I'm not passing judgment on the Roosevelt administration or the armed forces. It is not my place to. But looking back, we realized it was an overreach with the Japanese internment camps. Yes, these were Japanese Americans, many Americans of Japanese descent who were born in the United States, living along the West Coast states of Washington State, Oregon, and California, and shipping them against their will to camps further east in order to isolate their ability to communicate with any relatives back in the Japanese homeland. Yes, it turns out it was an overreach, but even as one former Japanese detainee said, as bad as it was in the American camps, their worst day was still better than the best day of any Jew in a concentration or extermination camp, any German POW in a Soviet prisoner camp or individual of Asian descent in a Japanese POW camp. Again, not justifying or exonerating the United States, but all players had their various groups of prisoners of war that they were taking for a variety of reasons. At the same time, to give us an idea of just how in some cases unprepared the United States was for this ensuing conflict, our Department of War, which will later be renamed the Department of Defense, was so small that it was scattered amongst different buildings in and around Washington, D.C. Even with the application and use of the telephone by the 19, late 30s, early 40s, it dawned on the American government that we needed one central spot where the leaders and their staff of the major branches of the United States military, such as the Navy, Air Force, Marines, and other groups would have the ability to come together. And that would be done just along the Potomac River outside of Washington, D.C. proper in what would become the world's largest office building built to date at that time and is still the largest office building today, known, of course, as the five-sided build building called none other than the Pentagon. To give you an idea just how fast we needed to consolidate our information, the idea of a five-sided building, just the idea of a five-sided building, just a few stories tall, because the higher it is, the easier it is to see by enemy airplanes. Should we have an, inv an aerial invasion by a potential enemy, the building is not nearly as tall as it is massively wide. And I'm speaking on experience from reading extensively about the Pentagon as well as visiting the Pentagon myself and see having an extensive tour with one of the employees. So this was not an arranged tour, but a, uh, a tour based on a connection of a friend of mine who gave me in some cases what they called the kind of the back of the scenes, back of the uh, curtain tour of the Pentagon. So the idea for the consolidation of 
America's military information. That idea was born on July 17th, 1941. And by April 30th, 1942, the first employees were actually moving in to a building that did not exist just 11 months prior. While it was not completed in the way that we can see today in an aerial photograph, it would only be until mid-February 1943 when the building ultimately was completed. I, I encourage you to pause right now and, and, and while perhaps listening to the podcast, I encourage you to take a look at an aerial view of the Pentagon. There's plenty, of course, to be seen, but what I encourage you to do is rather than looking at that massively large building, look at automobiles in the parking lot. Depending upon your picture, do you see anybody standing in, next to the building? Look, and that would just give you an idea just how large, how massive that structure is. It used no less than 410,000 cubic yards of cement versus a building like the Empire States Building used a paltry 62,000 by comparison. The cement was made from over 680,000 tons of sand and gravel pulled in from the Potomac River. Half of the weight of the building is actually from the bottom of the Potomac River. Initially, once the building was done and the phone lines were installed, there would be no less than 68,000 miles that's feet, miles, not feet, 68,000 miles of telephone lines connecting 27,000 individual phones, having well, handling well over 100,000 calls a day for over 40,000 employees in the building. That's not Department of War employees that might be in other locations doing work. That's just people inside. 40,000 people, which is the reason why colloquially it is known as Pentagon City, because it truly is a building that by itself is larger than many suburbs and the same size as some small cities in terms of population. It has, if anybody, and because some of the questions I have when I tell my students that I toured the Pentagon is, did I walk all of the corridors? No, I guarantee I didn't walk it because I survived it and I did the tour in a couple of hours. I would not have had the time to walk all of the corridors because if I did, I will have walked over 17 miles of every inch of hallway space. To put this into perspective, you could put five United States Capitol buildings inside each part so one Capitol building in each one of the five sides of the Pentagon, and you still have the middle of the Pentagon to do what you want with. To also a final point to put this into perspective, the females that were largely hired because they passed the security and background checks, oftentimes they were sometimes military officials were afraid to communicate on phone lines just in case they were compromised. So therefore, sometimes the female secretaries and assistants would have to run from office to office with correspondence. It was exhausting. 
there was not enough time, many being ridiculed, what took you so long to get this pertinent information into my hands, back to your office, and they'd run back sweating profusely. One, we do not have the name of this female assistant that had simply had enough of her supervisors and colleagues telling her that she's too slow, donned a pair of roller skates in order to get from point A to point B within the Pentagon. Her immediate supervisor saw that and ridiculed her for making a mockery of her position and fired her instantly. Upon walking out of the Pentagon with her roller skates dangling from her neck, one on each side of her shoulder, a senior military officer asked her why she had roller skates on, and she simply told him the truth. One hour later, that young woman received a promotion and was now at another desk in the Pentagon, while many, not all, but many office assistant positions now had their job descriptions revised to reflect that the ability to know how to roller skate was a must. This is what we're talking about in the sense of American innovation. America figuring out how to try to get the job done in ways that prior might have been in seemingly impossible. That massive building largely was, was completed based on the works and the efforts of none other than one star at that time, General Leslie Groves. That's the same man that I shared with you who is responsible for the ongoing Manhattan Project. Groves desperately wanted to get an assignment on the European or Asian military fronts, but America, specifically the President of the United States, just simply could not spare that mind, that to-do attitude to get the job done. So while we laud and certainly uh, re refer to Groves in many ways for his heroic efforts, deep down, it's not where he wanted to be, but yet he still prevailed. And now turning back then, getting away from the American, military, American home front, we're going to take a look back. We're going to leave now, take an international flight back out of the United States and look at the military campaigns in the European theater now that America was at war. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, Chris, you said Japan attacked the United States on December 7, 1941. Why are our soldiers being sent over to the European continent? Because immediately following Japan's declaration of war on the United States, and yes, of course, us declaring war on them, the next day, Japan, or the next day, excuse me, Germany, and then Italy, also declared war on the United States. So we had and were faced with in a matter of 72 hours, once not being involved with the war in any way, in the sense of active military engagement, to suddenly having three military superpowers declaring war on the United States. Yes, we responded. However, please note that in terms of empires, you had the Axis Empire, an axis of Berlin to Rome, Berlin, Germany, Rome, Italy, on which the European continent would spin if Hitler had his way. That was a much smaller, in terms of square mile, territory of the globe than what Japan occupied. But Hitler, 
was seen as the greater threat. Why? Because what I just alluded to, he is primarily on land. While Hitler does control a vast majority of the European river systems and lakes and many areas of the Baltic Sea, the areas of the English Channel and the Mediterranean Sea at times during the war, he is still primarily a threat on land. Japan was largely a threat on water. And that is two very different things. What I mean is that it is virtually impossible. I didn't say impossible, but virtually impossible, extremely difficult to try to push back an enemy on land by hopscotching over him. In other words, we can't get to Berlin to defeat Hitler and occupy the German capital, which would mean Hitler is gone or arrested and the Nazi regime has fallen. America and its allies couldn't do that by simply dropping soldiers into Germany while the rest of the country is surrounded by Nazi the machine of war. No, if we're going to get to Berlin, we have to start somewhere on the European coast and sweating, toil, and tears push that massive German and Italian war machine back to their capitals inch by inch. It wasn't going to be easy. But that same approach wouldn't have been necessary if for the Japanese empire. The reason being is because, again, so much of the Japanese uh, territorial claims was over water. There you could hopscotch your way to the Japanese island. Case in point, how many of listeners, uh, raise your hand, have ever heard of Iwo Jima? I would imagine most of you heard of Iwo Jima. How many of you heard of Chichijima? C-H-I space C-H-I Jima. Uh, not too many hands going up there, huh? No, it's not nearly as well known. And it was much larger than Iwo Jima. But you see, once America and her allies eliminate the threat of the Japanese Air Force and the Japanese Navy, we didn't have to push back to Japan island by island. We could begin what is now known as the island hopping campaign, where we only go after and occupy and attack the strategic islands of serious significance, of which Iwo Jima was, but Chichijima was not. So the tens of thousands of Japanese soldiers that were isolated on Chichijima would either die by suicide, dehydration, and or starvation. America, by and large, didn't attack because it didn't need to. We just hopped over the island. As long as the Japanese didn't have the Air Force and the Navy to assist them on Chichi, there was no reason to bomb them. There was no reason to try to occupy the island. That's the reason why, as we begin America's military assault, and our now active involvement in the Second World War, we are going to begin primarily on the European theater. Please note that doesn't mean we're ignoring the Asian theater or the Pacific theater, not at all. We have one of the top American generals by the name of Douglas MacArthur responsible for the Pacific theater. But he knew from the beginning that the initial thrust of the major military American military response was going to be in the European theater of war before the Pacific War. That's the reason why when what became known as the Big Three would meet 
several times during the war and by the in the, what we call military conferences and by big three, meaning the leaders of the three most important, if not powerful nations at this time. One, of course, was going to be Franklin Roosevelt, president of the United States, into his third term now. It's going to be allied with Great Britain's Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and will then be added by American Britain's former enemy, Joseph Stalin of the Soviet Union. Please note, though, when I say that America and Great Britain allied with the Soviet Union, we weren't exactly in bed together from the beginning, the way Great Britain and the United States was from the start of the conflict. Remember that Stalin was the one that jumped in bed with Hitler in order to sign the peace agreement and tear apart the independent country of Poland. That was until Stalin became potentially one of Hitler's next victims. That's when he allied with the United States and we allied with him. You might say, well, why would we have done that? Because again, the old expression, your enemy's enemy is now your friend. We allied because it was logical. We brought in Stalin because it was the practical decision to make. Because if the Soviet Union was on the American and the British side, collectively, all three independent nations or countries could put a military concentrated effort and squeeze the Nazi regime to death, which ultimately, as we know, will happen. But again, as a foreshadowing of just how strong Hitler and Mussolini's empires are there in Europe, it's going to take us years for that to happen. One final point before I sign off, please know that the big three would equally agree that they would demand unconditional surrender over every enemy empire that they ultimately would take down. That would mean they demanded unconditional surrender by Italy, Germany, and Japan. I stress that because that will become a sticking point in revisionist history as to did we have to really bomb Japan if we allowed them to conditionally surrender? No, we didn't allow Germany or Italy to conditionally surrender. We weren't going to change our tune with Japan. And that's, again, where we'll begin by looking at what the three leaders discuss when they come together for the first time as World War II continues to rage. Thanks very much for listening. Have a great remainder of your day.